Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin. If you enjoy Unchained or Unconfirmed, my other podcast, which now features a weekly news recap after every interview, please give us a top rating or review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. This holiday season, how can your donation do the most good in the world? GiveWell spends 20,000 hours each year researching charity, looking for the places where your donation will save or improve lives the most. They provide a free list of the most impactful charities they've found. You can find out more or make a donation at givewell.org slash unchained. First-time donors using that link will have their donations matched up to $1,000. They accept traditional payment methods, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and several other cryptocurrencies. Keep this in mind while you make your end-of-year tax moves. Again, that's givewell.org slash unchained. Crypto.com. Get their app and buy crypto at true cost with no fees or markups. Get a metal MCO Visa card with up to 5% back on all your spending. Want more? Download the Crypto.com app today. Kraken is the best exchange in the world for buying and selling digital assets. It has the tightest security, deep liquidity, and a great fee structure with no minimum or hidden fees. Whether you're looking for a simple fiat on-ramp or futures trading, Kraken is the place for you. CypherTrace cutting-edge cryptocurrency intelligence powers anti-money laundering, blockchain analytics, and threat intel. Leading exchanges, virtual currency businesses, banks, and regulators themselves use CypherTrace to comply with regulation and to monitor compliance. Today's guest is Kane Warwick, founder of Synthetics. Welcome, Kane. Hey, Laura. Thanks very much for having me. Let's start with a basic question. What is Synthetics? Uh, Synthetics is uh, essentially a uh, synthetic asset issuance platform on Ethereum. So we uh, create tokens that track uh, assets, track the price of assets um, in you know, traditional finance and uh, in you know, crypto finance to allow people to have uh, price exposure. And so we're going to talk a little bit more about uh, what all that means. But first, uh, let's talk a little bit about your background. How did you come to found Synthetics? So uh, I was actually running a payment startup uh, back in like 2014, 2015, and we worked with a lot of the crypto exchanges in Australia. And as it kind of got closer to you know the bull market in 2016, 2017, uh, like a lot of markets like Korea, uh, we saw that there was uh, a pretty big spike in the spread uh, between crypto prices um, in Australia and, and other markets like the US and Europe. And so we had this idea that if we were able to build a stable coin, we would be able to kind of arbitrage those uh, those price spreads and, and more efficiently move money around. And so we started doing some research. You know, this is before Maker obviously had launched, um, and really the only option uh, out there was Tether. And so yeah, we we essentially you know decided to launch this uh, this new um, protocol to enable uh, people to transfer value in a, a stable token. That was kind of how uh, the the project started, which was called Haven back then. And how did you make the transition to synthetics? So uh, one of the, I I guess, ideas that I had when we launched this was that regulated stablecoins were not going to, uh, you know, be very likely, um, or at least, you know, we're going to take a long time uh, to launch. And, you know, that turned out to not be very accurate. In 2018, you had Paxos and TrueUSD and USDC and, and a lot of the regulated stablecoins that, that launched. And that just meant that the the kind of market for a decentralized stablecoin um, was much smaller than uh, it had been. And so we looked at the model and we said, okay, you know, what can we do uh, with our model to kind of create some differentiation? And one of the things that we saw was this ability to, you know, reprice debt and move between different synthetic assets. So we had a synthetic US dollar token, but we were able to launch a synthetic gold token, synthetic silver token, and people were able to move between those tokens uh, with zero slippage. 
which was kind of the, the advantage. And so at that point, we decided to focus on you know, synthetics exchange and, and that ability to trade synthetic assets. Yeah, and I think what's remarkable is that you've gained quite a bit of traction in a short amount of time. So let's talk a little bit more about kind of like what that journey was after you started creating some of these. How did you become one of the biggest projects in DeFi? It, you know, kind of gradually and then all at once, I guess. Uh, so, you know, we, <laughs> so, you know, we have uh, the second most value locked and, you know, the way that that um, kind of evolved, I guess, is we, uh, as we launched more synthetic assets, uh, like synthetic Bitcoin, synthetic gold, synthetic silver, uh, the awareness and, and interest in the project uh, grew you know, really rapidly. But in addition to, I guess, pivoting towards synthetics, we also made a decision to change the monetary policy of the, the protocol. Um, so previously, like most ERC-20 tokens that launched in you know, 2017 and 2018, we had a fixed um, a fixed supply of 100 million. And we decided that you know, we weren't really seeing high staking rates. We weren't getting people uh, participating in the protocol and, and you know, kind of uh, doing what we needed them to do. And so we changed the monetary policy and essentially started paying inflation to the people who were staking, who were actively participating in the network. And that immediately had a, a very powerful kind of feedback loop that it created where people, you know, got more excited. They started, um, you know, to, uh, to understand the project more and, and dive in and, you know, the growth kind of accelerated from there. Great. So yeah, let's talk a little bit more about what people are doing on the platform. What are some of the most popular since? So we actually just launched a, a bunch of new synths uh, this week, um, including a DeFi index token. And so this DeFi index token is essentially like a basket of tokens um, in the DeFi space. So there's Maker, there are obviously uh, Link, um, SNX is in there, uh, we've got um, 0x, etc. So what you can you know, essentially do is hold this token and get exposure to kind of you know, the entire DeFi space, or, or at least all the tokenized uh, projects within DeFi. Um, and so that's, I think, a pretty novel uh, and interesting asset that doesn't really exist anywhere else. Um, but in addition to that, we've got you know, things like uh, you know, synthetic Bitcoin, synthetic Ether, um, where a lot of the volume happens. Um, but we're starting to see you know, definitely demand grow for things like synthetic Maker. Um, and some of the inverse tokens. So during the transition uh, to multi-collateral DAI over the last few weeks, uh, the demand for synthetic maker and inverse maker has really increased. And, and there's a lot of organic volume happening there, which is kind of good to see. This is super interesting. Yeah, there's so much to unpack. Um, I guess, why don't we just start with the DeFi token first? In a way, you know, it's it's sort of like, I guess it's like an index. Um, how do you decide like what the weightings and stuff should be? Yeah, so we wanted it to be kind of representative of the space. And, and obviously, you know, we can only uh, track the things that have tokens. So we can't track something like Compound right now, for example. Um, but we took the weightings by market cap and then, you know, tried to kind of normalize it. It was actually one of our uh, Discord um, participants, one of the synthetics um uh, members who uh, kind of normalized the weightings and proposed it, um, Arthur Zero X, who uh, I'm sure a lot of people follow on on Twitter as well. Um, and you know the community then voted and reviewed that weighting, and they were happy with it. Um, we also uh, did some polls to work out what people wanted to include in the index. Um, so it was you know kind of a, an open governance mechanism to determine the weighting and, and constituents of the of the basket. And then for a synth like. The Bitcoin synth. Why is it that they wouldn't just buy Bitcoin? Yeah, it's a it's a really good question. I think you know the advantage that we have with something like synthetic Bitcoin is if you want to just hold Bitcoin and you're a long term holder, it makes sense to just go and buy Bitcoin on the spot market. Um, but like most derivatives, the advantage is in kind of access, right? So if you're holding Bitcoin and, you know, you've got it in your own wallet, going from Bitcoin into ETH or into USD or something like that, you know, there's friction there. Uh, whereas if all you want is the price exposure and, you know, you're not necessarily a long-term holder, uh, your ability to go from Bitcoin into, say, gold and then back in the U.S. dollars within synthetics exchange with zero slippage is quite powerful. And so that's why I think we're seeing a lot of people who you know, want that price exposure, but also want the flexibility of being able to move out you know, into a different asset fairly quickly. 
And if, but is there anything that they're doing with the Bitcoin in the synth Bitcoin that they couldn't do with BTC as well, aside just from being able to trade in and out of it without slippage? Uh, no, that's basically it. It's just, you know, people looking for price exposure. So, you know, think about it as kind of the difference between, you know, gold futures versus the, the gold spot market. Um, you know, people who don't necessarily want physical delivery of gold, they just want price exposure to gold. This is sort of a similar, uh, you know, uh, mechanism. You just get the price exposure to Bitcoin, um, but without, you know, having uh, custody of the asset or a right to the asset or anything like that. And then I was also wondering about some of these synths that are similar to stable coins, like this, the SUSD. So I don't know if this would technically be called a stable coin, but I did happen to see that uh, the amount of value in it is ahead of, for instance, Gemini USD, which is an actual stable coin. But then since the synthetic USD is backed by SNX, is that essentially just like a riskier version of a stable coin? And so it has kind of like different properties from a stable coin or like how would you compare this to a regular stable coin? So I think, you know, in, in 2017, 2018, we kind of saw three different types of stable coins emerge. There was, you know, the fiat backed, put money in a bank. It's a, a right to kind of convert that token into the fiat um, style stable coin. So, you know, that's your Paxos and Gemini and, and TrueUSD, et cetera, um, and Tether ostensibly. Um, and then we had crypto collateral backed. Um, so obviously Maker and DAI is the, the kind of biggest example of that. So using Ether as collateral to issue a stable you know, USD uh, asset. And that's really what uh, you know, SUSD is. It's the same kind of principle. It's just using SNX as collateral instead of ETH. And then there's the third category, which is uh, like the algorithmic stable coins. So things like Basis, which obviously, unfortunately, didn't launch. So we didn't really get a chance to kind of see how that would play out. But I think there's a few more algorithmic stable coins that have launched recently. And what are people doing with the synth USD? Well, so one of the nice things, again, about, um, you know, the, the sort of synth uh, ecosystem, I guess, is that you can take that synthetic asset and convert it easily into a different asset. Um, so you can go from, you know, SUSD into gold. Um, and so I guess that's kind of a, a bit of a different property to say something like, you know, a Gemini or, you know, a Tether, where you need to find a counterparty to trade uh, with in order to you know convert it into Bitcoin or, or some other asset, um, so it's sort of one of the interesting properties of synthetics is that you know once you've got any of this debt, whether it's USD or gold or Bitcoin, you have the right to reprice that debt into any other asset. And we talked earlier a little bit about how the DeFi synth was formed, but where did the idea, or where does the idea for like any particular synth come from? I mean, typically it comes from our community, you know, so we've got a, a, a lot of traders in our community and a lot of people uh, who, you know, are very into crypto and crypto trading and, and, you know, that sort of thing. So we look at what the demand is from the community. So things like uh, S-Link, which we launched recently, um, SXRP, um, were kind of, you know, coming from the demand that the community was uh, was displaying, you know, in Discord and other places. And... I heard that you're also coming out with decentralized futures. We are. Yeah, that's something that we're working on. So uh, essentially, it'll be a, a decentralized BitMEX or, or Deribit or you know, any futures uh, exchange. Um, you'll be able to take a, a leverage position on um, you know, something like Bitcoin or ETH um, and you know, open that position and it'll be a, a perpetual future. So let's walk through how this works. So let's say I'm a user, I come to your platform, and I want to create some kind of synth for myself. What what do I need to do? So if you want to create a synth, um, you have so you can't actually create a new synth if you are just you know arriving in the platform. Um, you can only choose from the existing synths, and and one of the reasons right, I, for that I guess is, I meant mint yeah. mint a synth. Oh, gotcha. Okay, is that right? right. So okay. if you yeah, that's right. Yeah. If you want to mint uh, a synth, then, you know, you need SNX and you essentially will uh, will turn up at Minter, uh, which is our um, dApp that we use for minting um, and kind of maintaining your position. And you'll lock SNX and against that value of that collateral, you'll mint uh, a synthetic asset. So within Minter, you can only mint SUSD. Um, but with the contracts, you can mint any of the synthetic assets. So you could mint synthetic Bitcoin, for example. Um, and again, it's it's very similar to like a maker 
vault or a maker CDP where you lock ETH and then you get issued this debt, which is a, a synthetic asset priced in US dollars. Oh, wait. Okay. So sorry. Let me walk through this again. So I show up at Minter and then I have to give it ETH in order to get SNX. Is that it? Sorry. Yeah. So if you, if you don't have SNX, you need to get SNX from somewhere. So, you know, you would um, either buy the SNX for ETH or you know, for something else. But once you've got SNX, you can lock that SNX and issue uh, synthetic USD against it. Oh, oh, okay. So I go to Minter with my SNX and then I turn that into SUSD. And then from there, mm-hmm. I can move into any other synth. Is that? That's right. Is that it? That's right. Yep. That's it. So in order to create the SNX though, people need to over collateralize. And I think it's by like roughly 700%. Why is it so high? Because the liquidity of SNX is still quite low. So, you know, the idea is that eventually as SNX uh, accrues value and as liquidity grows, we'll be able to lower that collateralization ratio. But it's sort of a reflection of the risk uh, profile of SNX versus, say, ETH right now as collateral. Oh, okay. Well, do you have any plans to add any other types of collateral? We do, actually. We're, we're working on a proposal to add ETH as a, a form of collateral to the network, um, which hopefully will go live later this year or early next year. Okay, So earlier you talked about how one of the ways that you got traction on the platform was to uh, change the monetary supply and uh, I guess give some of the rewards to people who are staking. So will that still be the same if they're staking ETH rather than SNX? No, it won't. It's it's a slightly different uh, approach. So the the people who stake SNX will get the full uh, rewards from uh, trading and uh, the inflation. Um, so the trading fees on the exchange as well as the, the inflationary supply. Um, people who lock ETH just have a right to come and trade synthetic assets. So once ETH collateral goes live, you'd be able to turn up with ETH. You wouldn't need to have SNX. You'd be able to mint uh, synthetic ETH against that ETH and then start trading on synthetics exchange immediately. And the advantage, I guess, to someone who's holding ETH is that it doesn't force them to convert their ETH into SNX or into, um, you know, one of the synths. They can still hold their ETH and trade uh, without kind of taking the risk of, of selling down their ETH uh, position. Oh, I see. Okay. So this is sort of like how currently amongst people who have created SNX, only about 80% of them I think, well, actually, tell me if I understood this correctly. I think about 80% of them are staking it. Is that right? About 80% of the supply is staked. So the total token supply, yeah. Okay. And then so the remaining are doing what? Trading it? Uh, yeah, some, some of them are just sitting on it and, and not staking. Um, you know, some of them uh, have it sitting in exchanges. Uh, some is probably lost and, and unstakable. Um, which, you know, something that happens in crypto networks. So, you know, there's any number of reasons that someone might decide not to stake rather than to participate in the network. Okay. So essentially when you start adding ETH as a collateral or when, when you add it as a collateral type, then what is likely to happen is that the current stakers will still basically have a similar incentive, but they might earn more in fees because there might be more trading activity. Something like that? That's exactly right. Yeah, that's it. It's just an easier way to get people to trade more. Okay. Yeah, I was just wondering because, as you know, the... the, Well, actually, this is an interesting question. So let's see here. So first, it's like in so many other systems, staking, you know, is correlated with security. Is that is that really the function that it's it's providing here? It's it's slightly different. So you know you're securing uh, the pool of assets, I guess, or the the pool of debt um, by putting your collateral there, and you're taking a risk. So when you lock SNX, you take the risk of the total value of the debt pool that's that's out there. So you know you're providing that service to someone uh, to allow them to turn up and reprice their debt. Uh, so, you know, you're securing the, the debt pool essentially. Um, but obviously we rely on the Ethereum network for the actual security of the tokens themselves and, and you know, consensus, et cetera. Okay. So this is like a slightly weird question, but we were talking about this really high collateralization ratio and how SNX isn't very liquid. Is there any possibility of some kind of like black swan event or something where 
like people some somehow suddenly cannot actually pay back their you know their positions definitely uh, you know, that's one of the, the big risks that you take as, as someone who's minting. Um, so if for, if something happened to the debt pool such that the debt pool, you know, increased uh, by, you know, an order of magnitude, then there would be more debt uh, outstanding than the collateral value of SNX, which, you know, would create some kind of uh, a downward spiral potentially. Um, now, there's mechanisms that are um, in place to kind of prevent that from happening. Uh, but, you know, it's definitely possible. And in fact, back in July, we had an issue with uh, the price feeds with our Oracle, uh, which created just that scenario. So um, there was a bot that was trading on the exchange and the, the price feed uh, for uh, the Korean won um, failed. And they, the bot was able to essentially create about $2 billion worth of debt, which obviously was significantly higher than the, the market cap of the, the SNX collateral. Um, so that was something that, you know, was kind of, indicative of one of the risks that uh, exists in the system. Right. So I was going to ask you about this. So when it's creating $2 billion worth of debt, that basically means that then if that bot or whatever wanted to um, kind of like close out uh, of the SNX system, then they would need to pay back $2 billion or so. Is that, is that what that means? What does that mean? So it, what it means is that the bot has $2 billion worth of debt outstanding, but there's only, you know, at that time, I think there was about $30 million worth of collateral. So the bot would basically never be able to cash out that position. Uh, there's not enough you know, collateral value. Um, it would be like if there was, you know, a uh, million dollars worth of ETH locked up to issue DAI, and then all of a sudden the DAI supply was inflated to a billion dollars. You know, there's only a million dollars worth of ETH there. So the first million can be claimed, but then after that, you know, there's no, uh, there's no value there to be claimed. So essentially the, the system was insolvent and the bot was unable to, to close out that position and, and get the profit. Okay. So we're actually going to talk a little bit more about what happened there in a little bit. Um, but I actually just wanted to t- talk a little bit more about this, um, the staking and the SNX and stuff. So, I think some other thing that's a little bit interesting to me about how the staking works here is it's not, it's not similar to staking on other platforms where people can basically just earn passive returns. Am I, am I right in thinking that? Yeah. So, you know, typically with staking, you know, you have some level of responsibility. Um, You know, you're, you're providing a service, you know, and there's things like, uh, you know, live peer where you're providing a service running nodes um, you know, if you're staking an ETH 2.0, you're providing the security to the network. So typically there is some responsibility and some action you have to take. And in our network, that action is that you're, you're providing the, the collateral essentially for the network and, and securing the debt. Okay. All right. And so, all right. So then we talked about how now you're going to add, and when are you going to add, when are you going to add Ether as a collateral type? Uh, we're working on it at the moment. Um, we're hoping to get it done by the end of the year, but it's looking like it might be early next year, the way things are tracking. And for the monetary supply, you said that, you know, right now it's pretty high inflation, but that's going to go down. So what is uh, like the the monetary policy? Yeah, so it's actually an interesting uh, question. So at the moment, we have uh, an inflationary supply that halves every year. Um, and that halvening event is coming up in March. Uh, but some people within the community uh, have proposed a change to that inflation schedule um, to smooth it, essentially, um, which was something that I was personally against initially, but I've come around to the fact that I think it makes sense. So it's it's basically been passed. Um, we've had a couple of governance calls where it's been discussed and you know the community has kind of reached consensus that it's the right thing to do. There's a couple of minor uh, things around the parameters uh, for um, the terminal inflation that are still being discussed, but there will be a vote on that uh, hopefully in the next uh, you know week or so, and then it will be implemented. So that's something that, that will probably change by the end of the year. And it will mean that you know the inflation goes from uh, a million tokens that it started out to somewhere around uh, 300 million tokens. Okay. And is that just in perpetuity or is there ever going to be a cap that's reached? 
So the, it looks like the um, the consensus is to have perpetual 2% inflation, uh, approximately. It might be a little bit higher, a little bit lower. Um, and the intent behind that is to ensure that we've got some additional supply of SNX to fund the incentives that are outside of the system. Um, so we've got some incentives at the moment uh, around uh, Uniswap to, to incentivize liquidity there. Um, so we want to make sure that we continue to have that SNX supply to be able to incentivize those external things outside of the protocol. All right. So in a moment, we're going to discuss oracles and we're going to talk more about that bot that could have made the system insolvent. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. Will the world follow France and advocate banning privacy coins? Will government-backed stablecoins become the new fiat? Are distributed and peer-to-peer exchanges just a flash in the pan? The answer is maybe. Virtual currencies can flourish and create a new, private, and more versatile economy. But that grand vision can't happen without keeping crypto clean. And that requires support of governments and accountability for bad actors. Privacy-enhanced compliance using cryptographic controls has the potential to preserve anonymity without compromising legitimate investigations. CypherTrace is working on this vision of the future. Sign up to stay up to date on the privacy-enhanced compliance initiative and receive authoritative crypto AML reports quarterly. www.cyphertrace.com slash keep crypto clean. Today's episode is brought to you by Kraken. Kraken is the best exchange in the world for buying and selling digital assets. With all the recent exchange hacks and other troubles, you want to trade on an exchange you can trust. Kraken's focus on security is utterly amazing. Their liquidity is deep and their fee structure is great with no minimum or hidden fees. They even reward you for trading so you can make more trades for less. If you're a beginner, you will find an easy on-ramp from five fiat currencies. And if you're an advanced trader, you'll love their 5x margin and futures trading. To learn more, please go to kraken.com. That's K-R-A-K-E-N.com. Crypto.com sees the future of cryptocurrency in every wallet. Have you seen the MCO Visa card? A metal card powered by crypto. Loaded with perks, including up to 5% back on all your spending and unlimited airport lounge access. They pay for your Spotify and Netflix, too. What's not to love? With Crypto.com, not only can you spend your crypto, but you can grow it, too. Earn up to 6% per year on the most popular coins, like BTC, XRP, LTC, and up to 12% per year on stablecoins like PAX or TUSD. Just a few taps before you start receiving interest every week. Join the over 1 million others and download the Crypto.com app today. Back to my conversation with Kane Warwick of Synthetics. So as we uh, touched on briefly earlier, the integrity of the system is highly dependent on the quality of the Oracle. And uh, as you mentioned, there was this incident with the trader. And I believe... Um, you know, the way that their bot was able to take advantage of the system was something to do with the Oracle. So can you tell us exactly uh, how they were able to to make that hack happen? Yeah, so so they were looking at the price feeds that were uh, being published on chain and they were reading the mempool. Um, so they're reading all of the transactions that are sitting waiting to be uh, confirmed by miners. And they took the uh, those feeds and they were able to essentially front run the pricing changes. So um, they would detect that a price change was going to happen and they would move into that, uh, that asset. And then as soon as the price was updated, they would leave the asset. And we had some you know, measures to prevent that um, speed bumps and things like that that we we're um, working on, but they, the bot was fairly sophisticated and, and was pretty good at detecting when a large spike was going to happen. And, you know, it was, it was fairly profitable. Um, it was making, you know, around uh, 10% a day or something like that, um, you know, with, with its trading. Uh, but then we had uh, an issue where there was this cascading failure of our Oracle um, for the Forex APIs. So we have a number of APIs that are medianized and several of them failed uh, in different ways simultaneously, which we didn't have uh, a good mechanism to prevent. Um, or, you know, to alert us to. And the bot was running and essentially detected this anomaly in the, the KRW price and was able to trade, uh, I think it was five times back and forth between uh, ETH and KRW. And it was able to generate about $2 billion worth of synthetic ETH. 
uh, at the time. So, you know, that essentially made the system insolvent. Uh, and we then had to work out a, a way to kind of roll back that, uh, that trade. Wow. So let's just give a little bit of context on how it is that the uh, price, the Oracle prices get pushed. As far as I understand right now, it's synthetics, or at least back then it was synthetics pushing the price. Is that correct? And if so, like, how are you determining the price? And yeah. So yeah, so we, we had um, some commercial APIs that were essentially being um, you know, pulled into uh, a system and then, you know, the aggregates were taken, um, outliers were, were like thrown from out. Like exchanges? Then, uh, well, these were Forex APIs. So they were coming from your commercial oh. um, Forex providers. So, you know, there's a ton of them around and, and we picked what we thought were, you know, four or five pretty good ones. Um, unfortunately, the the, um, the Forex APIs are less robust than the crypto APIs uh, from our experience, which was kind of surprising to us. So we had a lot more protection around the, the crypto APIs because we were worried that they were going to be a bit flakier, but it was actually the Forex ones that, uh, that created the issue. Okay. And so one other thing that I wanted to ask here was like later on, this same trader then wrote this Reddit post and this was like a few months later, actually. And this person complained that you had jacked up their fees, deleted their balance and forced them to trade their synth for SUSD. This doesn't appear to be sort of the same incident. It's kind of like, I, well, let me recap and, and you can correct anything that is incorrect here. But um, essentially like after the first incident, you had kind of said, okay, we're going to pay you this, uh, this bounty fee. And now anything, you know, that you do is basically going to help us make our platform better or something like that. Or, or actually, why don't you just sort of describe what happened? Yeah. So, you know, it was, as you can imagine, somewhat of a, an adversarial conversation, you know, it was, it was a bit of hostage negotiation because, uh, the, the, trader was well aware of the fact that the system was insolvent and if they didn't cooperate with us, you know, we would have had to fork the system or, you know, there would have been a, a significantly larger impact. Um, so getting them to roll back the trade was definitely the, the best solution. Um, and initially they wanted uh, a pretty exorbitant amount of money to, uh, to do that. And we were able to negotiate them down to something a bit more reasonable. Um, we ended up paying them about $40,000 worth of ETH to, to cooperate and roll back the trades. Um, but this, this, you know, trader was, uh, pretty, um, as, as I said, pretty adversarial and pretty, uh, aggressive and arrogant about, you know, what they were doing and, and their ability to kind of, uh, front run the system and our inability to stop them. And so, you know, we basically said, look, you can keep attacking the system. We're working on a number of, uh, of mechanisms to kind of prevent that. And, you know, it's, this is crypto, it's adversarial, right? We're going to, to try and fight back. Um, and, you know, work out whatever we can do to, to kind of make this, uh, less profitable. Um, and unfortunately the, the kind of calculus that I guess we, we came to was that if you don't have any punishment, if there's no downside to someone who's attacking the system, the optimal strategy is strategy is just to keep attacking. You know, if the worst that you can do is not profit, um, then this was only going to escalate. And so we're, we basically worked out that we would need to have some kind of slashing condition uh, implemented in order to you know, reduce the, the profitability of these bots. And so we implemented that. Um, it worked. Uh, we're able to slash the, this trader. And then, um, you know, they came back and said, well, I'm going to continue to attack the system. They did. And, you know, it was kind of this running battle. And, and it has this has kind of kept going on with different traders and different bots uh, probably for like the last six months. It's been a, a big uh, amount of effort that we've kind of had to implement uh, a number of different you know, uh, pieces of functionality to prevent this from running, which is kind of a constant uh, arms race, I guess. Wow. Okay. I bet it's making your platform better very, very, very fast. One thing that I was wondering about, though, is like, what what exactly are they exploiting? So I understand. So I understand that it's this knowledge of you know, a trade that's about to happen and kind of what the Oracle price is. But is part of that also because maybe just like the frequency with which you can update the prices is like a bit slower than you would like? Yeah, that's exactly right. It's just latency. So they're observing what's happening in the real world and we're observing it. We publish something to say, you know, this is what's happened in the real world and they're able to 
essentially publish it on chain faster than us. That's, that's their intent. That's what they're trying to do. Um, we've gotten to a point now where we've basically been able to, uh, reduce the front running to, uh, or at least reduce the profitability of front running, you know, to maybe half a percent a day or 1% a day, which is kind of, I guess, within our, our risk tolerance from, from where we're sitting now. Um, but again, as I said, this is an arms race and, you know, every time we make a change, the bots update and, and they try and, you know, attack the system and, and improve their bots. So it's definitely improving the system and it's making, uh, it's making it much more robust. Um, but it's, it's certainly been a lot of effort and a lot of engineering time to kind of work on these issues over the last six months. And how do you make the improvements anyway, if, as you mentioned in the original incident, the APIs that failed weren't even in your control? So, you know, what we've basically been doing is upgrading the Oracle. Um, and we're working on, on moving the Oracle away. You know, Synthetic still runs the Oracle, um, but hopefully by the end of the year, we'll start migrating away from our own centralized Oracle to uh, Chainlink. Um, and we've been working with the Chainlink team to... Uh, build a set of oracles that will be much harder to front run, um, and you know put some mechanisms in place to prevent people from uh, trading and and you know to um, to cover some of the edge cases that they've been using if they are trying to front run the system. Um, but as I said, it's it's kind of a balance between usability because some of these things impact uh, the usability for you know regular traders. Um, and so we have to kind of try and find a, a balance where you're never really going to get rid of front running completely. Um, but you can reduce it to the point where, you know, it's less profitable or, uh, you know, um, or not so impactful. So I don't know a ton about Chainlink, but can you describe how that system will differ once it's integrated than what you have now? So essentially they're just doing what we were doing ourselves. Um, but they've got a distributed group of people that are consuming these external APIs. So crypto APIs, et cetera. And a lot of them are data providers that already have the data. Um, so they've, they've got access to that data themselves. Um, and they take these different, uh, node operators who are kind of aggregating this data and then medianize it and publish it on chain. And so, you know, what you've essentially got is our Oracle times, you know, seven or 20 or, or 30, depending on, uh, the asset that, you know, the price is being published for, uh, which just makes it so much more robust, um, you know, than, than what we're using right now. So we're pretty confident that once we get that in place, uh, we won't have any future issues with you know, Oracle outages, um, but it doesn't necessarily solve the front-running problem. We still have uh, some edge cases that we need to handle there. And will that increase the frequency by which you can update the Oracles? It, it actually won't. Um, you know, there's, there's kind of a fundamental uh, latency that you have you know, with Ethereum. Um, so something that we're also looking at is you know, a layer two solutions that will allow us to publish prices much more uh, rapidly. So right now, the only way we can prevent uh, people from exploiting that latency is by forcing them, which is what you know, some uh, centralized exchanges do. They put a speed bump in. Um, to prevent people from being able to, you know, high-frequency traders being able to uh, publish things before, um, you know, everyone else can. And so we, we're putting these speed bumps in to ensure that, um, you know, someone can't look at the, the transaction being broadcast and try and front run it. They're, they're going to definitely be slower than it. Uh, but as I said, you know, there's a trade-off between, uh, between that and usability of the platform because if the speed bump is, is too aggressive, then it makes it harder for regular traders to trade I saw in a blog post that you wrote that once Chainlink is integrated, that will allow anyone to build and run an Oracle to obtain price feeds for synths. So what does that look like exactly? And how would you expect that would change the platform? I think it changes the platform because it, you know, it moves away from this uh, centralized control that the, the team has now, you know, our core team has. So once we get to a point where uh, there are these external Oracle providers, um, anyone in the community can essentially request a price feed. Um, so, you know, Palladium, uh, weirdly enough, people ask for pretty regularly. So, you know, the, the community can say, we're putting a proposal to add a Palladium token. And then provided these node operators who are running, uh, you know, Chainlink nodes can source a price for Palladium um, and, you know, kind of credibly produce it, uh, we can add that synth. Um, and it doesn't require necessarily intervention from you know the team directly to provide that price feed. So um, you know that's obviously going to be beneficial when we look at things like uh, synthetic equities. So you know, S Apple, S Tesla, et cetera. 
Interesting. The palladium thing threw me a little bit. I feel like this is one of those moments where you're like in crypto and then you're like, oh, there's yet another rabbit hole I could go down. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's people who are deep into palladium for some reason. So, um, yeah, it, it is what it is, I guess. Okay. So you also had a recent tweet storm about moving to Chainlink and you talked about how some people objected to it because it's not maximally decentralized. And then you wrote something that I found really interesting. You said, quote, we are very comfortable not using maximally decentralized oracles because Chainlink is more than sufficient to move the oracle attack vector to the bottom of our censorship vector stack, which means governance and other issues become become the highest priority. So what did you mean when you said that uh, Chainlink is more than sufficient to move the Oracle attack vector to the bottom of your censorship vector vector stack. (laughs) (laughs) So, so essentially what I was saying is, you know, at the moment you could theoretically round up five or six people um, in the community and, you know, throw us in jail and shut the project down. Right. Um, You know, and and again, I, I think about these things from, you know, a very adversarial perspective, right. That, you know, even though that's not likely right now, it's, it's possible. And, And so, so long as something's possible, we want to eventually be able to prevent it from happening. And, you know, the reason why, the main reason why you could get away with that and, and, you know, lock up five people and shut the project down is the Oracle. Once with the Oracle and, and once the price feeds are, are being published independently on chain and the protocol is just consuming those price feeds, then if you were to do that, if you were to you know, round up those, those four or five people and, and lock them up, uh, it would be very easy for the community given that everything that we're doing, everything other than the Oracle is open source to essentially fork the protocol um, or you know, do a hard spoon and, and migrate state um, and you know, redeploy it on chain and, and keep the system going. Um, and, you know, I think we're getting pretty close to that, but the limiting factor right now is definitely the Oracle. So, you know, as soon as the Oracle is not us and as soon as it's independent, um, it's going to be a, a huge you know, qualitative state in terms of the censorship resistance of the protocol. Hmm. Super interesting. Um, so something we referenced earlier that uh, we didn't go into much was you talked about how somebody could sell you know, like a million dollars worth of Bitcoin or, or whatever amount, and there would be zero slippage. Slippage. So how how is that possible? So it's possible because someone is able to reprice the debt. So one of the rights that you have if you're holding debt, um, whether you minted it or whether you bought it from someone for ETH or Bitcoin or whatever, um, you can turn up the contracts and you can say, I have you know, 10 synthetic Bitcoin, and I want to convert that into synthetic US dollars. And the system will uh, quote you a rate based on the current spot price and, and what the Oracle is publishing for those two assets, um, and then take a small fee. So a 30 basis point fee, uh, which goes into the fee pool. So that's a, a, just a right that you have within the system, uh, which is you know, obviously very beneficial. And, and I think I brought up uh, Maker earlier. Um, there was someone on Twitter, um, Andrew Kang, who uh, actually did an analysis of the slippage on Uniswap for Maker versus uh, Synthetics. And I think the slippage was about 50% less uh, for uh, trading Maker on Synthetics Exchange. So, you know, during the, the kind of MCD transition, when Maker pumped up to like, you know, 650 or, or 700 and then dropped back down, a lot of people were trading uh, SMaker and iMaker uh, because it was actually more efficient to trade on Synthetics Exchange than on the spot markets. Hmm. And why is it that it's more efficient on Synthetics than on Uniswap? So Uniswap, because it uses the, the um, like automatic market making function, uh, has you know kind of this built-in slippage. So you know the the larger the order you trade, the more slippage you'll get. Uh, oh, oh, so right, right, right. I think yeah. So like you know one percent slippage for like a fifty thousand dollar order, for example. Um, whereas with uh, synthetics, I think it was you know thirty five basis points or something like that. Okay. Yeah, and also I guess just to. I mean, it's probably obvious to people, but why don't you just talk about how um, synthetics differs from other DEXs and then therefore how the trading behavior on synthetics differs from another DEXs? Yeah, so, you know, typically other DEXs, excluding Uniswap. Um, and so, you know, Uniswap and synthetics are kind of in their own category of uh, these like peer to contract. Uh, decentralized exchanges. But in a, a typical DEX like Radar Relay or something like that that's using um, you know, 0x uh, protocol, 
you need to find a counterparty to, to match your order. Um, so, you know, if you want to trade maker and you want to trade $50,000 with a maker, there needs to be someone on the other side who's willing to buy that. And, you know, in any market where you're matching counterparties, there's going to be slippage. Um, and so, you know, that's something that uh, is kind of exacerbated on DEXs. Um, and it's one of the reasons why Uniswap is so powerful because you don't need to wait for a counterparty to trade. You just have to accept that there'll be some slippage, but you'll always get a quote. Um, you know, you'll never be in a situation where you can't sell, uh, you know, the, the asset or trade the asset that you want to trade. It's just a question of are you willing to deal with the slippage. Um, and synthetics exchange is, is kind of similar. You can always turn up so long as you've got debt um, and trade that amount of debt for a different asset and, and reprice it. And I think I saw you were saying that the average uh, trading size on synthetics is a lot higher than on other exchanges or at least on other DEXs. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's it's typically quite a bit higher because, you know, you uh, you just have people who you know, want to trade, say, you know, $20,000 or $30,000 that they couldn't trade on uh, on another DEX. And obviously, you know, at centralized exchanges, there's there's more liquidity because you know they're just much bigger markets. Um, but as the the synthetic asset pool grows, as the debt pool grows, um, you know, it's possible that we could see orders of you know five million, ten million dollars, for example. All right, and so how are fees set on synthetics? So at the moment, it's a flat thirty basis point fee. Um, and then there's an additional fee if you're moving from a long token to a short token. Um, and this is, again, one of the kind of trade-offs that we built in to prevent front-running. Um, so if you go from SMaker, which is the long version, to iMaker, which is the short version, you pay 60 basis points. And who decides what those fees are? Uh, well, the community side. So, so we had the fees set at 50 basis points, um, up until, uh, a few days ago. Um, and one of the community members uh, put in a proposal to reduce it back to 30 basis points, which it kind of has been sitting at historically. Um, and that passed, uh, pretty unanimously. And so the, the fees were updated. So it's kind of, again, you know, uh, handled by a rough consensus, uh, you know, um, within our discord channel and, and within the community. And we have talked about Uniswap a few different times, but as far as I understand, Uniswap also has been uh, kind of pivotal to the success of synthetics. How so? So there's this very uh, strong kind of symbiosis, I think, with Uniswap. Um, you know, when Uniswap was announced, uh, it, was, it was very obvious to me that it was going to become quite powerful uh, for DeFi protocols. Um, and particularly for us, because we need uh, liquid on-ramps and off-ramps, and we need to know that those on-ramps are always going to be there. You know, we need people to be able to get into the debt pool and out of the debt pool in order to trade on synthetics exchange. And so uh, what we did um, earlier this year was to incentivize people to put liquidity into uh, the synthetic ETH pool. And so that's now grown to be the largest uh, pool on Uniswap, um, you know, and, and does typically, you know, it's in one of the top uh, exchanges in terms of volume uh, on a daily basis as well. Um, and so now, you know, you can move in and out of uh, a synthetics exchange via this Uniswap uh, pool and the slippage is pretty minimal for, you know, uh, trades of like $10,000 or, or so, um, which is pretty good. So the average trader trying to move in and out of synthetics exchange can go through Uniswap uh, pretty comfortably. And something that, uh, you know, we talked about earlier was how, you changed the monetary policy and, um, you know, how you started the project one way, but it ended up going a different way. And, you know, how you had maybe one thought to do a synthetic uh, stable coin. And then later you realized people wanted volatility. And I've also heard you talk about the importance of iterations. So just with like all the different twists and turns that your project has taken, like, tell us kind of what the lessons for you have been and like kind of what the different things are that happened that made you realize like, Oh, it's better to, you know, go this way than that way. I mean, I, I think, you know, startups, uh, just operate that way. You know, there's a lot of opacity, uh, in, in, you know, uh, trying to run a startup and, and trying to kind of predict what's going to happen. Um, it's almost impossible. And, you know, really you just need to, to kind of play small bets and respond to what the market says. And, you know, so we, we placed a very large bet, which, you know, you could argue was kind of dumb, uh, that, you know, regulated stable points wouldn't be a thing. And then when all of a sudden they were, we realized that, you know, the market that we were um, attempting to address had kind of been, you know, pulled out from under us. 
And you just need to respond to those sorts of things. So, you know, we looked at what we built and, and we're pretty comfortable that it was a very powerful protocol and, and would have a lot of value, but we just needed to find the right market for it. And so, you know, we started issuing assets. And, and again, you know, another kind of small bet that didn't really play out was this idea that if you had multiple fiat currencies, people would be happy to move in between those fiat currencies. And that turned out to really not be the case either. There's not a lot of demand for that. Uh, but what we did see demand for is, you know, trading these volatile assets and, and having access to uh, a number of different crypto assets and fiat currencies and commodities and, and other assets on a single platform. Um, that was where, you know, we really started to see product market fit and, and generate some, some real interest. And what about that moment when you had this confrontation with the trader who had built the bot that, you know, had um, <laughs> nearly made your system insolvent? Like at that moment, what do you feel like the lessons were for you and for other entrepreneurs in the space? I mean, you know, I've been running startups for a long time and uh, most of them have failed, um, you know, as startups tend to do. And, you know, you always have these crisis moments. And, and I do think there is a point where, you know, after you've been through, through so many crises, you know, crises, you, uh, you kind of become inured to them a little bit and you can kind of detach and, and not become emotionally invested in, in what's happening. And, you know, in that moment, it was really just about, okay, how do I resolve this specific issue that's right in front of me and, and not really thinking through, um, you know, the, the implications and, and consequences. But it was almost three hours, I think, that we were negotiating with him to kind of roll back the system. So it was it was pretty high stress environment. Um, but, you know, again, I think having gone through, uh, you know, similar issues in other startups where, you know, things blew up, uh, you just have to kind of roll with it and, and, you know, treat the situation that's in front of you and, and deal with that directly. So something also that's come up a few times in this show is, you know, you talked about how you made this decision to change your monetary policy. And um, I could just imagine that when you decided that that you thought that that would be a good idea, that you might be nervous about presenting it to the community. So was there any community input on that? And if so, how did you factor that in? Yeah, we, you know, I, I actually uh, had originally came up with the idea, um, you know, almost uh, eight months before, uh, before uh, DevCon 4. And so at DevCon, um, you know, there were a number of people that were stakeholders in the project that I kind of pulled aside and said, hey, what do you think about this? And, you know, it was, it was reasonably positive. There was definitely some skepticism around it. And, you know, is this just kind of some Hail Mary to, to try and, you know, I guess get attention for the project or, or something like that. Um, but, you know, I was able to, to kind of make the case, I think, that, you know, the issue we had was we weren't properly incentivizing people to understand the protocol. And, you know, when you look at things like Bitcoin, for example, and, and how Bitcoin uh, generated its network effects, it was because it was paying people to understand it. Uh, you know, the protocol itself paid people to learn how to install mining software and understand, you know, block rewards and all that stuff. And and I think if that didn't exist, it probably doesn't gain the traction that, uh, that it did. And so, you know, I looked at that and, and I said, we need something similar to incentivize people to, to care about this and to, you know, to want to actually learn about it. And, you know, I think we were able to convince most of them, but even still, I was pretty surprised. Uh, I expected a lot of pushback from the community when, you know, we announced it, but interestingly, they were, they were super positive about it. And I think mainly because most of them already understood the, the network and, you know, we were essentially saying, we're going to pay you for understanding it. And, you know, people who are not actively participating will be punished. And so, you know, it was, it was much more positively received than I expected by, by a very, very wide margin. Yeah. And this is kind of like a theme of the conversation where uh, there's this tension because certain elements of what you're doing are centralized, at least at the moment. But then, uh, you know, just even the things like, you know, when I asked about the exchange fees and stuff, you said, oh, well, actually, that was, you know, set by uh, the people in the discord and like the, the DeFi index was decided by a community member. So what, it, what, you know, what is going on with governance? Like right now, I know you guys have a foundation, but at some point I think you'd like to move to a DAO. So what's your vision for how this will be governed? Yeah. I mean, you know, obviously we're, we're quite a small team. I think people don't realize how small our team is um, and you know, how, how hardworking, 
the you know the engineers and, and everyone on the team uh, is to kind of keep the, the project going. Um, but it's just impossible for you know seven or eight people to kind of anticipate everything that could happen. You know, um, we can respond to things, but but trying to kind of understand uh, where we should go next just requires the inside of a, a much larger group of people. And so, you know, the community has kind of, you know, really stepped up and, and become pivotal in, in helping us to, um, you know, understand where we need to go next and, and see some of the issues. And, you know, oftentimes we don't necessarily immediately agree. You know, the, the, the core team might kind of look at a proposal and say, oh, we don't think that's a great idea. Um, but, you know, the, the rough consensus model kind of allows for those debates and those discussions to kind of evolve over time. Um, and, you know, most of the time we kind of reach consensus both internally, you know, within the team and, and within the community um, and are able to kind of, you know, move forward. But it's just not possible with a, a project as com- complex as this is to not have that outside input, you know, and so we really try to foster it as much as possible and, and be as open as we can to, to kind of bringing in um, those outside views. But then, I mean, for the future, do you think that you might move to a DAO? I think I think we might. Um, you know, it's something that we're we're looking at right now. You know, in order for us to, uh, I guess, stay ahead of the the kind of um, you know potential regulatory issues that are coming up, we need to uh, not be in control of the protocol. And so, you know, rough consensus is helpful and bringing in those external parties. Um, but at some point, we need to, I guess, relinquish control, um, you know, of the protocol upgradability. Um, and so that's something that we're looking at, you know, that potentially could be managed by a DAO. Um, but, you know, it's something that we obviously need to, uh, I guess, you know, understand a little bit better and, and, you know, work through what the implementation looks like, as well as, you know, working with the community and, and letting them kind of, uh, I guess, help us to understand what they want. Um, from from that because you know if you if you move to on-chain governance and you implement a DAO and the DAO is kind of controlled by this plutocracy uh, as we've seen in, in a couple of other projects kind of emerge uh, I think it has a really chilling effect on participation within within the community and so we're we're really wary of trying to thread that needle and, and kind of manage that I guess and as mentioned earlier you guys also did an ICO. And I think you raised about $30 million, is that right, in 2018? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, yeah. and I believe from a conversation that we had, you think it was maybe from about 70,000 wallets. Is that right? Uh, so there's about 70,000 wallets who hold uh, our token. Uh, but a lot of that came from a very large airdrop that we did that was, uh, I think, about 65,000. Um, wallets. So there oh, were okay. about five or six thousand people who participated in the sale, um, you know, in the in the uh, open sale, um, and then you know there were uh, bounties and airdrops and things like that. Okay. Um, well, in addition to that, you also recently did a small VC raise. Like, what was the purpose of that raise? So you know we have a, a large treasury, obviously um, that you know is is mainly SNX tokens, um, and it was really about you know bringing in I guess some new stakeholders, and and there had been a lot of interest in, in people participating in in the protocol, um, and you know one of the challenges I guess of having not that much liquidity in in uh, the spot markets is that if someone wants to get you know two, three, four, five million tokens, they really can only get it from the foundation. And so as that demand grew and, and more people were interested, we started to kind of, you know, uh, have some conversations and, and vet those people. And we ended up going with uh, Framework Ventures, uh, who've been amazing that, you know, they're participating in all aspects of the system. They've kind of helped to, uh, to work on the inflationary uh, change as well. So, you know, we, I think we picked the right team to kind of come in and, and help us. But, um, you know, we need, as I said, to bring in external stakeholders and, and people who can kind of help to, to push things forward. So, you know, if you find the right people uh, in the future, we'll, we'll probably look at, you know, selling tokens out of the treasury to them as well to, to get them into the ecosystem. And there were also rumors about Andreessen Horowitz taking an interest. What was that about? Um, I mean, you know, there's a there's a wallet that is controlled by uh, by A16Z uh, that has SNX tokens in it. It didn't come from at the foundation directly, um, but you know, it looks like they they do have a position in in synthetics if you look on chain. So, um, you know, I can't really uh, provide it much more information than that because you know that's that's kind of all I know. But 
um, you know, there's a lot of people in our community who are uh, very good with chain analysis and, and were able to kind of work out what was going on. And, and, you know, it was on Twitter before I knew anything about it. So it was, it was kind of an interesting uh, incident, I guess. <laughs> there are so many incidents like that in crypto. Um, I know. It's but anyway, crazy. well, Yes, like the whole space. Um, in other interviews, you've mentioned that you have confidence that decentralized finance will consume centralized finance eventually, but that right now there's a lot of challenges. What are the, the biggest challenges? I think the main challenge is that we still haven't abstracted enough complexity away for you know the average user. Uh, and that kind of flows all the way through the, the stack, right? So, um, you know, user interfaces and, and user experience is still, uh, you know, pretty far behind centralized finance. Um, I think, you know, the other issue is there's a lot of friction getting money in and out of the system, getting value into the system. So, you know, it's going to take at least, uh, you know, a few years, I think, before we can kind of bring all of this, uh, this kind of complexity much lower and, and just remove it and, and kind of provide... I guess, experiences for users and, and products for users without them needing to really understand what's happening in the background. All right. Well, we'll see uh, how you and others resolve all these problems or all these challenges. Where can people learn more about you and synthetics? Uh, best place is probably to, you know, if you really want to dive in, uh, to jump into our Discord channel. Um, but, you know, you can go to uh, synthetics.io if you want to uh, have a look at the um, the system and, and get an overview. Um, we also have a dashboard, which is dashboard.synthetics.io, which gives a, an overview of the network, which is, is kind of cool. You can see all the different synths and what the open interest is, etc. Great. Well, thanks for coming on Unchained. Thank you very much for having me. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Kane and Synthetics, check out the show notes inside your podcast player. If you're not yet subscribed to my other podcast, Unconfirmed, which is shorter, a bit newsier, and now features a short news recap, be sure to check that out. Also, find out what I think are the top crypto stories each week by signing up for my email newsletter at unchainedpodcast.com. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Factor Recording, Anthony Yoon, Daniel Nuss, Josh Durham, and the team at CLK Transcription. Thanks for listening.